this program to bring you a special news bulletin. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, by air, President Roosevelt has just announced. The attack also was made on all naval and military activities on the principal island of Oahu. We take you now to Washington. The details are not available. They will be in a few minutes. The White House is now giving out a statement. The attack apparently was made on all naval and on naval and military activities on the principal island of Oahu. The president's brief statement was read to reporters by Stephen Early, the president's secretary. A Japanese attack upon Pearl Harbor naturally would mean war. Such an attack would naturally bring a counterattack, and hostilities of this kind would naturally mean that the president would ask Congress for a declaration of war. There is no doubt from the temper of Congress that such a declaration would be granted. This morning, Secretary Hull talked with the Secretaries of War and of the Navy. Now the two special Japanese envoys, Admiral Nomura and Special Envoy Caruso, are, are at the State Department engaged in conference with Secretary of State Hull. Their appearance at the State Department on this Sunday afternoon emphasizes the gravity of the Far Eastern situation where hostilities now seem to be actually opening over the whole South Pacific. And just now comes the word from the president's office that a second air attack has been reported on Army and Navy bases in Manila. Thus, we have official announcements from the White House that Japanese airplanes have attacked Pearl Harbor in Hawaii and have now attacked Army and Navy bases in Manila. We return you now to New York and we'll give you later information as it comes along from the White House. We turn you now to New York. Hello, NBC. This is Bert Silent speaking from Manila and this time I've got a real scoop for you. Manila has just been bombed. In fact, right now it is being bombed. And without warning, Japanese bombers started bombing Fort William McKinley, Nichols Airfield, and the RCA transmitting station. At nine minutes past three o'clock, without warning, right now, the moon is shining uh, absolutely full. And so, on December 7th, 1941, bulletins like these interrupted the uh, regularly scheduled programs of radio listening households across America, heralding the news that on December 7th, 1941, America had been attacked. Hello, from Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, with The War. Uh, today, we're bringing you a very special episode as we look back at Pearl Harbor, 72 years after that attack by Japan. Listen to news reports, uh, one speech, as well as some dramatizations. This will be an interesting hour plus of uh, program, so let's go ahead and continue. As news reports came in, it fell to the news media to clarify and inform listeners as to what was happening. 
That process looked quite a bit different 72 years ago. Let's take a listen to this uh, analysis from CBS News. We will hope later to be able to bring you direct reports from both Honolulu and Manila. To recapitulate, the White House reported today Japanese air attacks on the Hawaiian Islands and Manila in the Philippines. Here in the studio with me is Major George Fielding Elliott, Colombia's military expert, who will analyze now these latest developments in the Far East. Major Elliott. The Japanese appear to be taking the offensive in an effort to delay and impede American operations in the Far East. Apparently confronted with a situation in which there was no escape except war, the Japanese have attacked the main American naval base in the Pacific at Pearl Harbor on the island of Oahu in the Hawaiian Islands. This attack is by air and can only come from aircraft carriers since the Japanese do not have any bases close enough to the Hawaiian Islands from which to launch land-based aircraft. This is a very great risk for the Japanese to place aircraft carriers within reach of the very powerful naval patrol bombers and the long-range army bombers on the island of Oahu. It is a risk which would only be assumed as a very desperate measure, one which may well result in the loss of the carriers that are making the attack, but may also gain for the Japanese important time to carry out operations in the Far East because of the damage that they may inflict on the naval base and shipping in Oahu, and thus delay the proceeding of the United States Pacific Fleet to the Western Pacific. That is probably the Japanese object, and uh, we don't know yet what success they've had in carrying it out. They're expecting to take heavy losses, and these losses may be expected. The question is how much delay they have purchased for the carriers that they have risked. We have been on the telephone with our station in uh, KGMB, which is in Honolulu, and they report to us that the attacking planes number between 50 and 100, that the air raid is still on, and that the anti-aircraft fire can be heard in a steady drone as the attacking planes come in. We received a bulletin just a little while ago which reported that there have been some of these, what Manila Corps, rather Honolulu calls unidentified planes, shot down. And this latest report now from KGMB is all that we have to the moment. We will continue to receive reports from there, also from Washington, on the developments in our relations with Japan, the relations which will tell very shortly the story of what is to happen in the months that are to come. And Columbia will bring you important news bulletins during the broadcast of the New York Philharmonic Society, which follows this program, and will also bring you a summary of all developments at the intermission time. From Washington, the recruiting office of the United States Navy announces that all recruiting centers will be open at 8 a.m. tomorrow. You've been listening to Elmer Davis, Albert Warner, Bob Trout from London, and Major George Feeling Elliott with a review and analysis of the Far Eastern situation. The Wrigley Company has told us that we may interrupt their program at any time to bring you the latest bulletins. But now, we return you to our regularly scheduled program. Welcome back. I can't help but think how different... This all looked before the age of uh, 24-hour news. Perhaps the most striking difference is that regularly scheduled programming continued for the most part, with just uh, interruptions as news bulletins became available. CBS was not able to immediately raise its 
affiliates in the Philippines or in Honolulu. There does exist a recording of CBS trying and failing, but I decided not to play that. Of course, for listeners at home anxious to find out the full scope of what's going on, many of us in the 21st century can sympathize. As we remember the uh, September 11th, 2001 uh, terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, the rumors were spreading wildly. We didn't quite know what to expect or what was going on on the ground. We do have a recording of NBC getting in touch with its affiliate in Honolulu, KGU, and we'll go ahead and play that for you. One moment, please. One, two, three, four. Hello, NBC. Hello, NBC. This is KGU in Honolulu, Hawaii. I am speaking from the roof of the advertiser publishing company building. We have witnessed this morning a distant view And here we hear the news media frustrated by the limits on phone calls during a great uh, national emergency, which would certainly jam up the phone lines. The reaction to Pearl Harbor was swift. President Roosevelt met with his cabinet on the evening of December 7th. And on the morning of December 8th, he went to address Congress to ask for a declaration of war. War had already been declared 
on Japan by countless allies of the U.S., particularly in the Western Hemisphere, as well as the United Kingdom. Here now is that famous speech by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt from November 8th of 1941. Senators and representatives, I have the distinguished honor of presenting the President of the United States. Members of the Senate of the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The United States was at peace with that nation, and at the solicitation of Japan, was still in conversation with its government and its emperor, looking toward the maintenance of peace in the Pacific. Indeed, one hour after, Japanese air squadrons had commenced bombing in the American island of Oahu. The Japanese ambassador to the United States and his colleagues delivered to our Secretary of State a formal reply to a recent American message. And while this reply stated that it seemed useless to continue the existing diplomatic negotiations. It contained no threat or hint of war or of armed attacks. It will be recorded that the distance of Hawaii from Japan makes it obvious that the attack was deliberately planned many days or even weeks ago. During the intervening time, the Japanese government has deliberately sought to deceive the United States by false statements and expressions of hope for continued peace. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. In addition, American ships have been reported torpedoed on the high seas between San Francisco and Honolulu. Yesterday, the Japanese government also launched an attack against Malaya. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Hong Kong. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Guam.
Last night, Japanese forces attacked the Philippine Islands. Last night, the Japanese attacked Wake Island. And this morning, the Japanese attacked Midway Island. Japan has therefore undertaken a surprise offensive extending throughout the Pacific area. The facts of yesterday and today speak for themselves. The people of the United States have already formed their opinions and well understand the implications to the very life and safety of our nation. As Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy, I have directed that all measures be taken for our defense, but always will our whole nation remember the character of the onslaught against us. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. I interpret the will of the Congress and of the people when I assert that we will not only defend ourselves to the uttermost, but will make it very certain that this form of treachery shall never again endanger us. Hostilities exist. There is no blinking at the fact that our people, our territory, and our interests are in grave danger. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph so help us God. I ask that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. Welcome back. 
When doing a, a podcast with material from the golden age of radio, a typical challenge is the lack of preservation, where there are so many lost episodes, stories, and uh, programs. Uh, with Pearl Harbor, it's almost, uh, when doing an episode about Pearl Harbor, it's almost the opposite. People sense that this was a historic day. Some stations preserved a complete broadcast day. Uh, and you can listen to news and entertainment. You can hear exactly how the bulletins came in. If there was any reaction from on-air personalities, uh, it's, uh, it's a daunting task to go through and to pick out. And we could probably be here for, uh, several hours, uh, trying to go through and pick out which to play. Uh, however, there, it was a program that was recommended to me by Brian Ashby, who really provided the impetus for this whole uh, podcast. Uh, it is an episode of the series uh, March of Time. March of Time uh, was a very uh, popular radio series for its era. Uh, most of its episodes have been lost. In fact, only uh, two of the uh, World War II episodes are still around. But... Uh, uh, thankfully, the one from Pearl Harbor uh, is still preserved. It's not in the best of conditions, but it does capture the events of Pearl Harbor and the days following, as well as what U.S. Uh, response was from the citizen on the street. And so I think this will be worthwhile listen, and then we'll have another uh, program that we'll bring to you. I do want to say here, as we get uh, started with uh, playing uh, many of these programs with direct reactions to Pearl Harbor, uh, there are some sentiments in, uh, expressed in them that I would not uh, endorse and could be offensive to some for uh, racial or sensitivity uh, reasons. And I definitely appreciate where that's coming from, but we're playing it as is for the historical context so here now uh, is uh, the March of Time from December 11th of 1941. The editors of Time, the weekly news magazine, recreate from the pages of Time the first week of the United States at war. March of time. Monday, December 7th, 1941. The eastward rolling earth peels off the night. Gray light kindles low over the dark Pacific. It is almost dawn. There is a distant booming, but it is not the boom of the sea. In the western half of the United States, it is mid-morning. Church time for thousands. Almighty God, who has given us this good land for our heritage, we humbly beseech thee that we may always prove ourselves a people mindful of thy favor and glad to do thy will. Bless our land with honorable industry, sound learning, and pure manners. Save us from violence, discord, and confusion from pride and arrogancy, and from every evil way. Defend our liberty, 
and fashioned into one united people, the multitude brought hither out of many kindreds and tongues. While in the United States, churchgoers are hearing the common prayer for their country in critical times, in Honolulu it is 7.50 a.m., not even Sunday breakfast time. A lawyer named Roy Grittersack is warming up the motor of his little private plane. Spinning overnight, Mr. Grittersack. Okay. Great morning for flying, isn't it? Yeah. Just a handful of clouds. And not a plane in the sky. Right. Well, come on. Hello. 3,000 feet aloft, lawyer Roy Grittersack leveled off. Look down at the green, low-shaped island of Oahu. Then Roy Vittasek looks south of Togo Head. Coming directly toward him, steadily, swiftly, on shore, the big black warning planes. They are nearly upon him before Roy Vittasek can see that they are not the warcraft of his own country. December 7th, 1941. It is 2.05 p.m. The Washington office of Secretary of State Cordell Hull. Japanese envoys Nomura and Furutu arrive 15 minutes late for an appointment with Mr. Hull. Minutes pass as the tardy envoys, constantly consulting their watches, return the level stare of the bronze Lafayette from Washington, surveying them from across the room. Then, ushered into the office, Kennedy and Cordell Hull. Come in, gentlemen. Take seat. Thank you. Okay. You have your government's answer to our government's proposals of November 26th? Yes. Let's see what it says. The United States is conspiring with Great Britain and the Far East. Both the United States and Great Britain have resorted to every possible measure to obstruct the establishment of peace. Japanese government cannot tolerate. In view of the attitude of the American government that it is impossible to reach an agreement. Mr. Namura, I must say that in all my 50 years of public service, I have never seen a document that was more crowded with infamous falsehoods and distortions. Infamous falsehoods and distortions on a scale so huge that I never imagined until this day that any government on this planet was capable of uttering them. Sunday, December 7th, 1941. It is 2.20 p.m. under the great White House portico. A uniformed United States soldier jumps to an army car, hurries up the steps. Gordia from the Chief of Staff's office. Here's a sealed message from the decoding room at the Army Communications Office. Must be shown to the president immediately. Sunday, December 7th, 1941. It is 2.25 p.m. in the almost deserted Washington office of Phil Peacock of the Associated Press. What have you got for the night wire, Phil? Ah, nothing much. Routine Sunday stuff. I'll get it. Associated Press. Hello, Phil. This is Steve Early. Oh, hello, Steve. Where are you? At the White House? No, I'm calling from home. I've got the U.P. and the I.R.S. in the same wire. Yeah, well, what's up? I have a statement here that the president just called up and asked me to read. Quote, 
Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor from the air, and all military and naval activities on the island of Oahu, the principal American base in the Hawaiian Islands. End quote. I'm going directly to the White House now. I'll tell you more later. That was Steve Early. Yeah? Round up the staff and get him in here. I'm going over to the White House. We're in the war. Operator. Operator, this is Associated Press Office of Honolulu. How about my call to San Francisco? One moment, please. I think I finally reached your party. Oh, good. Go ahead, please. Hello, this is Burns, Eugene Burns in Honolulu. We're being bombed. Yeah, Burns, we got a flash in Washington, but no details. The attack is still going on. I'll give you what dope I have. Ready? Go ahead. From 50 to 150 Japanese bombers, dive bombers, and pursuit ships assaulted the island of Oahu this morning. At 8.10 a.m., the first squadron came roaring in from the southeast over Diamond Head. Creek northward over Pearl Harbor. Got that, Bartel? All right. The bombers circled over a U.S. Navy's Ford Island plane base in the harbor center. Dive bombers dropped to within 100 feet of the harbor surface, launched torpedoes at the many U.S. warships flying at anchor. From nearby Hickam Field, U.S. Army plane base, rose a barrage of anti-aircraft fire as a second wave of Japanese planes approached. The enemy... Hey, Dave, that bomb must have fallen very close to you. Yeah, it did. Something tells me I'd better give you the rest of this report back. Well, here we go. The enemy scored direct hits on Hickam Field barracks, killed over 100 U.S. soldiers. Wheeler Field got a blast on its hangars. Honolulu got incendiary bombs. Northward, machine gun fire raked the streets of the town of Wahiawa. Uh, in uh, Pearl just a minute, Gene. Uh, what town was that? Wahiawa. Okay, go ahead. In Pearl Harbor, smoke rose as one vessel was set afire and another exploded. Other vessels steamed from Pearl Harbor in search of Japanese plane carriers. Getting this okay? I didn't get that last part. Would you repeat that? Oh, Oh, Bartel? Hello? Hello? Say, operator, can't I get this call through? Thus, after 23 years and 25 days of peace, the United States was plunged into its seventh major conflict. The attacker of the Japanese Empire, whose windows the U.S. had opened on the world just 88 years ago. In Washington, the White House announces 1,500 killed, another 1,500 wounded. Admits the loss of one capital ship, one destroyer. As the fateful news reaches the 132 million peace-loving, peace-making American people, by radio, press, and neighborly word of mouth, these are some reactions. In San Francisco, it is just church time. A motorist drives into a filling station. on a motorcycle. Guess I should have run over it. On the Cumberland Plateau in Tennessee, it is just after Sunday dinner. Sergeant Alvin Cullum York, legendary World War I hero, is told the news. We got to put up a united front and give those folks a licking right away. Take care of the Japs first, and then take on the Germans. 
as they struck the Russians at Port Arthur in 1904, while their ambassador danced before the Tsar, so once more the Japanese had delivered a copperhead punch. Their aim, to divide the U.S. fleet to Hawaii and Manila, prevent a unified British-American blow on the Japanese fleet as it seemed to attack Singapore. Guam, Wake, and Midway Island, and soon the Philippines are raided by the far-flung Japanese. In Portland, Maine, the afternoon movies are beginning. Says one Yankee. I'll be sure one thing. Up to today, I wondered whether we were another France. Too soft. But now we see that Americans can fight in the old way. I know Maine people can. For the U.S. on this first Sunday afternoon, it becomes plain that this war will have to be won the hard way. Farther down the coast in Martha's Vineyard, same player Charles A. Lindbergh formally ends the cause of isolationism. We must now turn every effort to building the greatest and most efficient army, navy, and air force in the world. When American soldiers go to war, it must be with the best equipment that modern skills can design and that modern industry can build. <laughs> Historic Sunday of December 7th ends. It is Monday, December 8th, 1941. At 12.25 p.m. in the chambers of the House of Representatives, members of the House and Senate hold a joint session, knowing that 20 hours and 25 minutes before, Japan had declared war on the United States and Great Britain. That Britain and the first of 18 other nations had declared war on Japan. Every important government official in Washington is present as Franklin Delano Roosevelt delivers his historic message. But none is more attentive than a group of 25 top-ranking officers in the Navy's Bureau of Aeronautics. These officers, some gray-haired four stripers, a few commanders and a few of lesser ranks, gather in the office of their chief, Rear Admiral Jack Powers, to hear the President's words by radio. Mr. in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph I ask that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7th, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Ladies and gentlemen, you have just heard. Gentlemen. Gentlemen, we have work to do. Fifty-one minutes after the president had spoken, the Senate, with not a single dissenting vote, the House with but one, declares war on Japan. On no issue was the United States ever so united. To a greater extent than at any time since he first took command during the choking depression eight years ago, Franklin Delano Roosevelt could act with complete authority. He could fire, hire, demand, order, and get what he thought best and necessary, with perfect assurance that the country was solidly behind him. At 4.10 p.m., the president signs the war resolution passed by the Congress. Then, after a brief talk with Russian Ambassador Maxime Litvinov, who had just arrived in Washington, the tired chief executive relaxes on his office sofa. 
falls asleep. Sleeps soundly for an hour. The office in which Franklin Delano Roosevelt takes his brief, well-earned rest once belongs to his old chief, Thomas Woodrow Wilson. It is the same office in which one night 24 years ago, Woodrow Wilson wrote the stirring words which called his country into a great war. Words still remembered. To such a task, we can dedicate our lives and our fortunes. Everything that we are and everything that we have with the pride of those who know that the day has come when America is privileged to spend her blood and her might for the principle that gave her birth and happiness and the peace which she has treasured. God helping her, he can do no other. December 10th. In the village of Hisa stands the shrine of the sun goddess, most hallowed spot in all Japan. To the shrine comes a little man wearing thick spectacles, a ceremonial kimono, and a black lacquered skull cap. He is the Emperor Hirohito, who believes he is a direct descendant of the sun goddess. Entering the shrine's innermost sanctuary, Hirohito places his wooden scepter under one arm, bows low. his hands to summon the spirit of his distinguished astronomical ancestor with whom he wishes to confer. He has news for us. In part, in a swift, eager whisper. His message conveyed, he bows again, then walks out of the shrine backwards. the son of heaven, has just told the sun goddess that three days ago his government declared war on the United States and the British Empire. It is an auspicious day for this mystic conversation. Japanese troops have landed on the Philippine island of Luzon. First foreign troops to make a full-fledged landing on U.S. soil since the War of 1812. But reports Douglas MacArthur, commanding general of U.S. and Philippine forces in the Philippines. German resistance has confined this action to the attack in the vicinity of Apari at the extreme northern tip of Luzon, where the Japanese attempted to establish a beachhead. Air activity continued in the vicinity of Manila, intermittent attacks on airfields at Cavite and Nichols Field throughout the day. The situation is in hand. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, this morning, one story was the same. America's young men stormed recruiting officers, kept them open 24 hours a day. Many brought their toothbrushes and razors along in the hope of lessening delay. Typical are the scenes in New York City, where with voluntary recruiting at double the rate of World War I, the Navy finds fit and signs on in two days enough volunteers to furnish crews for three destroyers. The young men wait by thousands in the cold early morning, slowly shuffling to the service of their country. A newspaper man goes down the line asking questions. Say, what's your name, buddy? I'm from the Daily News. Oh, a reporter, huh? Yeah. My name's Gordon Rome. I'm from Boykin State, Brooklyn. I sure hope they got a place to sit down in the Navy. My feet are killing me. Pretty tired, huh? Waiting here all night. Sure, I'm tired as hell. Lots of guys are more tired than me. Anyway, it doesn't matter much how you feel. You know what you gotta do. I'm here to do it. How about you, mister? 
You from Brooklyn, too? Uh, yeah, that's right. I'm uh, Dave Collins from Hex Street over in Brooklyn Heights. Well, how do you feel about all this? Well, I served three years in the Philippines with the 50th Coast Artillery. Hey, listen, you guys. We got a tough job on our hands. I know the Japs are good. Yeah, well, maybe we get out I guess that's right. And how about you? I come to volunteer, please. Say, uh, you ain't a Jap, are you? Oh, no, no. My name's Edward Tong, 240 East 30th, please. I am Chinese. Oh, I, I see. Excuse me. Makes it easy to walk in service with Japan's enemy. Therefore, turn me down. Bad eyes. Maybe they want me now, I guess. Well, good luck, Mr. Tong. How about you, lad? Me, I'm a small on Bricker Street. My own man's got a grocery store there. I'm an Italian boy. Well, don't you know we're liable to be fighting the Italian? Sure. And the Germans, too. That's all right for me. I'm an American. Voicing the thoughts of the vast majority of the American people, this recruit was right. For today in Berlin, Adolf Hitler addresses his Reichstag of Stooges, declares war on the United States. President Wilson deceived Germany. Now, between your Führer and President Roosevelt, there is a worldwide abyss. President Roosevelt fails to recognize the new order. He fails to recognize certain newly established governments. On the other hand, he recognized puppet governments with no territory. The army tried to prevent a break with the United States, but our patience has come to an end. So now, Italy terminates in loyal fulfillment obligations under the Axis Agreement, associate themselves with Japan in a struggle against America. No one is that sweet Germany. No one will destroy German unity. Germany is strong. Let us thank God. At the same time in Rome, another stooge of Adolf Hitler's, Benito Mussolini, addresses his people from the balcony of his Palazzo Venezia.
President Roosevelt drafts his second war message in four days. And this time, in only 135 words, asks the Congress to extend the theater of this nation's war to the two remaining actors addresses. At 1.4 p.m., without debate, without one dissenting vote, the Senate and the House of Representatives obey the request. Today, the U.S. Army Air Force lifts at the heart of all Americans with a major achievement. U.S. Army bombers rise from a Manila airfield with orders to engage the enemy off northern Luzon. The commander with his left light behind him reports... 2250 to Manila. Go ahead. 2250. Reconnaissance was right. Target sighted. Japanese capital ship. About 29,000 tons. Okay. We are over target. Signing off. Okay, 2250. Good luck. Big? Yeah, big here. You aim for fire control tower. Here we go. Two five zero to Manila. Go ahead. Two two five zero. One of our bombers scores a direct hit on a Japanese battleship in a Congo flag. When the bombers left, the battleship was blazing fiercely. Nice going. Two two five zero. That's one for the boys who got it in the barracks back at Hickam Field. <laughs> this was America. This first week of the Second World War. For the war was now truly a world war. A war which fronts on every continent save one. A war involving six poor nations and its terrible predecessors. In a fireside talk from the White House, the U.S. war president has reminded his warring people of this. Promises them the truth. Promises them victory. But war sees a long, bitter struggle, bad as well as good news. For the U.S., the war had got off to a bad start. But to a nation finally unified through war's reality... These opening disasters would be a small account. The U.S. had embarked on the greatest adventure in its history to make the world really safe for democracy. Time marches on. Welcome back. Uh, this was just a fabulous uh, program uh, and really did a, a good way, good job of just encapsulating everything uh, that needed to be known. Uh, Jeanette Rankin was the only uh, member of Congress to vote against uh, going into World War II, actually had voted against a World War I. Uh, and her case is somewhat of a an oddity in American uh, politics. She was uh, the first woman elected to Congress in 1916 and ended up casting an unpopular vote against uh, World War I. And then she did not return to Congress until uh, the 1940 elections uh, when she ended up casting a politically uh, fatal vote against entry into World War II. 
Uh, I guess that goes to show that timing is everything, and that was definitely true in the case of radio. Uh, when it comes to when a program airs, can uh, can can uh, determine what its reaction is and what its appropriateness was. Uh, take a, a, the program. Uh, uh, Sergeant Squirt and Captain Flag. It was a uh, radio uh, comedy, a service comedy about the Marines. Uh, and it aired on uh, Pearl Harbor uh, Day. And it wasn't an unfunny comedy or uh, over-the-top disrespectful uh, if it had uh, aired on uh, at another time, say, in the post-war era. But as it happened, uh, it, it had an enlisted man, um, not behaving respectfully towards an officer, uh, having to slap him around, tickle his feet after he'd been hypnotized. And really you felt, well, this, uh, show was ill-timed and indeed it did end up getting canceled. On the other hand, timing can be wonderful. When a program is timed in a way that's almost serendipitous. And so was the case with the Screen Guild Theater on December 7th of 1941. Not knowing about the Pearl Harbor attacks, they had uh, signed uh, America's greatest radio actor, performer, personality, Orson Welles, to appear in their play. In addition to that... The person who would write that play was none other than Mr. Norman Corwin, whose work we have already heard on the program. And it definitely spoke to the time and to what America meant. So here from December 7th, 1941, the Screen Guild Theater presentation of Between Americans. Between Americans, starring... Orson Welles. The Gulf Screen Guild Theater. The Gulf Oil Companies and your good Gulf dealer are proud to present a dramatic picture of this, Our America. Here is your host, Roger Pryor, to tell you about it. Good evening, everyone. We welcome you tonight to one of the most timely programs ever heard on the Gulf Screen Guild Theater. Our production of Norman Corwin's script, Between Americans, starring Orson Welles. Broadcast at any time, we believe this program would make every American's heart beat a little faster. Make him hold his head just a little higher. But since the tragic and foreboding news that came today, this program, Between Americans, now becomes an American odyssey. In just a moment, our story will begin, but first... Here's Bud Heaston. Right. And here's an easy way to change from a pessimist into an optimist. If you're wondering now how long you may have to keep your present car, and wondering, too, if it will last, if it will stay in good condition, just look on the bright side of the picture. Remember, when you give the wearing parts of your car good protection, that helps it stay young and act young a long, long time. So give your automobile the modern method of lubrication, Gulf Flex Registered Lubrication. Here's why. First... 
expert Golf Flex operator works from a master chart of your model car. Thus protects each wearing point in the chassis and body. Second, the Golf Flex man uses not just one or two greases, but six special lubricants, especially developed by lubrication authorities. And third, here's proof of how good these lubricants are. In recent tests by Golf engineers, Golf Flex chassis lubricant, for instance, stayed in the shackles 30% better and lubricated nearly 100% longer than the average of competitive products tested. So get Golf Flex registered lubrication. A much better than usual grease job at no extra cost. Remember, too, that your good golf dealer is also ready with splendid motor oils and gasolines, such as Golf No-Knox gasoline, the extra-value gasoline that has been especially designed to stop harmful pounding and hammering inside your engine. Make it a habit to stop regularly at your neighborhood good golf dealers, your headquarters for making your car last longer. And now, Oscar Bradley's music introduces Orson Welles, who will talk... Between Americans. This program is Between Americans. That's where the title comes in. We hope you like it, but you don't have to. At any rate, nobody's going to make you stick around and listen to it. That's one of the advantages of being an American. Now, tonight we're doing something quite foreign to the type of thing usually presented by the Gulf Screen Guild Theater. Instead of telling a story about five or six people, we're telling a story about a hundred million. This happens to include you, listener, whatever your name may be. As a matter of fact, names don't bother real Americans very much. Not when we've got states named after French kings and English queens are lifted right out of the Latin language like Montana or out of the Spanish like Nevada and towns. You know, if you were to hold a convention of all the people who live in foreign-sounding American towns, we could fill quite a sizable stadium. Among the delegates registering on the first day would be... Me, I'm the delegate from London, Minnesota. I'm in from Dublin, New Hampshire. Flew in this morning from Cairo, Illinois. Huh? Uh, whose turn, me? Uh, I'm from Canton, Connecticut. I'm from Paris, Texas. I came all the way from Shanghai, West Virginia. Warsaw, Georgia. I'm the delegate representing Moscow, Kentucky. My town is Toronto, Kansas. As for me, Lisbon, Maine. Delegate from Madrid, Alabama reporting. I'm from Stockholm, South Dakota. Drove down this afternoon from Bombay, New York. Hitchhiked here from Baghdad, Florida. All right, delegates, now that you've registered, you may all be seated. Now, that's all the preliminaries there's going to be tonight. We're through with the introductions, the overture, and the official registration. So now we can get down to the text, which is roughly speaking this. Today, particularly, people are thinking about their country pretty hard. Some of them for the first time in their lives. People are wondering where we're headed. Men are being called on to get ready to defend America. A lot of them are thinking in terms of what is there to defend? Well, now, America means a lot of things to a lot of people. Most of them are solid patriots, only they don't know it. They don't have to wear a red and white and blue button in their lapels to prove it. They don't have to agree with or even listen to people like this. My fellow citizens, in this great state of Flair and Pantero, we can pick the dog squirtle your taxes. Our great country is cribbly bolted up and can whack 
got a good hunch most people prefer the quiet kind of speaker. Like the fellow who got up on a platform in a Pennsylvania town one day and said, The world will little note nor long remember what we say here. That was the Gettysburg Address he was referring to. As a matter of fact, he didn't get such good reviews the next morning. Take, for example, the write-up he got in the Harrisburg Patriot. We pass over the silly remarks of the president. For the credit of the nation, we are willing that they shall no more be repeated and thought of. You think that's bad? Listen to what the Chicago Times had to say. The cheek of every American must tingle with shame as he reads the silly, flat and dishwatery utterances of the man who has to be pointed out to intelligent foreigners as the president of the United States. Of course, the rival paper in Chicago took the opposite point of view. Rival papers often do. The remarks of President Lincoln will live among the annals of man. That paper gave it four stars, and they were right. The Gettysburg Address did survive. But that business of calling a president a ham, really something to be proud of. I mean the right, the print a piece saying a president makes a sound like dishwater. Nobody dragged the editors off to jail, even if they were wrong. That's important. Comes under the heading of free press. As soon as anybody starts gagging the press, any press, watch out. Americans don't like that. And by the way, we got an earth to be calling ourselves Americans all the time when we're really only United Staters. We're a little selfish about that. It's America down there in Chile, too. All the way down the spine of the Andes. If any of you folks are hearing this down around Mexico or... Honduras, or Salvador, or Argentina, or even if you're an Eskimo in the Arctic. We hope you'll overlook our calling ourselves Americans as though we were the only ones in the hemisphere. We do that just because it's so much easier to say than anything else. Also because it sounds so good. By the way, before we leave the subject, what about the original American? The Indians? There's a forgotten race for you. How about the Indian on the nickel and the buffalo who roamed the back of the great American jit? Seems a shame. No two ways about it. We have forgotten those 100% Americans who went down to quarantine to meet the Mayflower. We don't see them around in person very much these days. But their ghosts are still with us. Maybe the red men are forgotten. Maybe not. But between you and us, it's said that near Boonesboro, Kentucky, on certain nights in November, by the light of the waning moon, some very peculiar ghost meetings go on in the woods south of the river. Also in certain parts of the Alleghenies, between the hours of sundown and the coming of the morning mist. Yes. If you happen to be listening to this in a car, driving along Highway 99 in Wyoming... That man you passed walking down the road a few miles back wasn't a man at all. Seriously, they were brave people. The Indians fought a losing fight against great odds. Wanted nothing more than to keep their land and their way of life. 
fighting the fight so many people of all races have had to fight since. The fight to keep free and independent. The fight to stop men from the outside who want to civilize somebody their way. You ever asked yourself what America means to you? Does it mean 1776? Columbia, the gem of the ocean? Big business? The Bill of Rights? Uncle Sam? Chances are it means none of these things. Chances are it means something very personal to each of you. Something close to your heart which you'd miss like the very blazes if you were stranded abroad. Might have nothing at all to do with quotes from Madison or acts of Congress. It might be just the feeling about the crisp autumns in New England and the smell of burning leaves. Might be the memory of the way they smooth off the infield between the games of a doubleheader. Might be a thing as small as your little finger. Have you ever been abroad and run out of American cigarettes? Hey, uh, speak English, mister? No, senor. Solo hablo español. Well, anyway, uh, do you carry cigarettes? Ah, cigarillo. Si, tenemos bastante aquí. No, I just want cigarettes. Uh, here, I'll take these. How much? Veinte centavos. Yeah, keep the change. Hey, uh, got a light there, senor? Si, como no, senor. Un momento. <coughs> hey, what is this? Soft, cold soup? Tastes like an old shoe. Here, you can smoke the rest of them. There you are. America might mean a tight-packed cigarette, which tastes good. Might mean the way a hot dog man slaps mustard on a Frank. Might mean going with your wife to the movie on bank night. Or taking your girl to the annual barn dance and social at Tuckerman's Barn. Plenty of you listeners know what I'm talking about. You hear people speak of home defense? This is the home. The home to be defended. The square dance down the Glen apiece. No man Tuckerman's barn. This is the America of all the couples dancing there tonight. That's what the nation means to Butch and Fred and Jenny and Alvira. And This is America to all the boys and girls from Malvern County and their folks at home waiting for them. What do you suppose America means to that auto repair man in the grease cake dungarees who works in the garage in the corner of Willow and Elm Street? It means, quite likely, crawling under the 1936 Buick and dragging an electric light bulb on a long extension after him. Hey, Joe, hand me that wrench. What wrench? A wrench at your feet. I gotta finish this apprentice job. Why don't he sell that jalopy and get a new boat? Yeah, you wanna talk us out of business? As long as he keeps his car, we get a repair job once in a while. Yeah, guess you're right. Sure. That's America to Pete and Joe. Piston job, transmission job, valve job, jack it up, change the tire. New fan belt, check the pump. On Saturday night, take the girl down to Joyland Dance Park. Means repairs to those boys and cans of oil and carburetor mixtures. 
and to Jack Prentice, who owns the Buick that Pete is fixing and who lives down on the beach near the Coast Guard station, America means the sound and the sight and the smell of high tide under the full moon, occasionally the melancholy note of the bellboy drifting up when the wind's blowing in from the ship channel, means the age-old sound of the sea, the same sound folks are hearing this very minute up around Penobscot Bay and Winthrop Beach and Chincoteague Inlet down by Calabogue Sound and on Boca Chica and then clean over to the other coast by Guadalupe, Carmel. Yes. Wind and wave and sand and rock and riptide and undertow. That's America to Jack Prentice and the hundreds of thousands of folks settled on the coastlines between Eastport and Key West, Point Isabel and Birch Bay. America is all things to all the people, prairie to Nebraskans, coal to Scranton miners, cameras and raw celluloid to the picture boys in Hollywood, the stink of crude oil to the men who work the wells, relief checks to the unemployed, a mic and a stopwatch to a radio production man, a BMT Express to Brooklyn office workers. Sure, that's the way it goes. Or isn't it? What does this country mean to you? It might mean anything. Anything at all. It might mean a course in highfalutin poetry at Harvard. Today, gentlemen, we will consider the influence of Whitman on the development of poetry in America. By 1870, after 12 years of incessant attack against squeamish over-refinements, Whitman really began to create an active distaste for literary ethics. Or else it might be an argument between two baseball fans as to which is the better team, the Yankees or the Red Sox. Yeah, but look! The Yanks are a bunch of old men and cripples. Yeah, yeah. They won't last. I tell you, they yeah. won't last. Well, it gets good and hard around the middle of July. Yeah. Well, the double hitters begin piling up. What are you talking? Listen, the man's just having the best season he ever had. He's an old man, huh? Keller hitting a dozen homers. Right. I'd like to be a cripple like that. New home run record for the club. Won't last, huh? Who's the Red Sox got as good as the man's? Name one guy. Name one. I'll name two. Ted Williams. Well, a good hitter. No getting away from that. What you say? Better the man? Wait a minute. Do you say... Or it could be a poker game in Charlie Ferreter's law office upstairs over the five and ten cent store on a rainy afternoon. Or a meeting of the Kiwanis Club in the mansion house on Thursday. Or the news store. Or a great symphony concert sent out over everybody's air, playing the music of all the world's great composers, regardless of their race or nationality. For instance, something by a great German Jew named Mendelssohn. Something you couldn't play in certain countries on the other side. Now let's stop a minute and figure this out. Is it an accident that makes just being a citizen in this comparatively young country so attractive to so many people? To the world's greatest skater from Norway? To the world's greatest mathematician from Germany? To the world's greatest orchestra conductor from Italy? Is it an accident that a thousand million people all around the world would give everything they own to be in your shoes? 
a free citizen of this country right this very minute? Is it the weather here? Let's ask some of the natives. You from New York, how's the weather out your way? Oh, I like it all right, only the summers give me a pain, sticky and hot. And then we usually get a stretch of terrible overcast weather around April and November. Sometimes ten days go by without the sun coming out once. And you, miss, from Miami, Florida. Oh, our climate's fine. Except you have to watch out for sunburn. A gentleman from Kansas? Well, summers get pretty hot. Winter's pretty cold. Tornadoes raise a ruckus every once in a while. Los Angeles. You. Ah, wonderful climate. Magnificent. Don't you ever get tired of all that sunshine? <laughs> no, sir. Not a bit. <laughs> Never rains? Well, a little precipitation, maybe, but no rain. <laughs> no earthquake? No, just a little one. Are you interested in some real estate? Uh, no, thanks. Oh. <laughs> and uh, you from San Francisco, uh, how about it there? Best climate in the world, top. Lots of sunshine? Lots. Lots of fog? Lots. All right. <laughs> then it's not the weather which makes it so attractive. Is it maybe our wine, women, and song? Let's ask the experts. Uh, you there, expert on women. American women are beautiful, certainly. But we've never produced any classic or historic beauty. We've no legendary figure to compare with Helen of Troy, or with any of the Greek or Roman Venuses, or with Egypt's Cleopatra. As far as fiction is concerned, we can offer nobody to stand up against Italy's Juliet, or Germany's Isolde, or France's Roxanne. Certainly not Scarlett O'Hara. Certainly not. No, indeed. All right, that's fine. Thank you very much. Now, what about our wines? Is that what makes America so attractive from the outside looking in? How about it, wine expert? American wines are excellent, but then, of course, meaning no offense, have you ever heard of French champagne, burgundy, Libramé? All right, thank you. Uh, thank you. Can it be our song? Maestro. America can well be proud of its composers and of its wealth of folk music. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that we have yet to produce a single world great symphony, whereas Finland has produced seven, Germany and Austria half a hundred, the Russians about twelve, the French two or three, England two or three, Bohemia... Not song, then. Neither wine, women, nor song. So what is it, then? Well, it's this. Come right down to it. It's the spectacle of nearly 150 million people trying to live up to the expectations of a handful of great men who lived and died 150 years ago. Men who were so fed up with the kind of government they'd been getting, they sat down and wrote a new constitution for themselves and their children. A democratic constitution that's been added to but never been topped before or since. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. Or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and petition the government for a redress of grievances. No person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. The right of trial by jury shall be preserved. Excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. The right of the citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States 
or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Or on account of sex. Those are pretty good sentiments. Be kept alive and flourishing in the world today. Of course, there are other things that makes our union a good one to belong to. It's a beautiful country. Even though it has a lot of incorrigible badlands and corrigible slums. Aren't many countries have as much in them to look at and wonder about as this one? This can be a rather fierce country, too. Ever see the way its mountains frown down sometimes? Know what they're frowning at? Some rumors they heard about petty intrigue. About political bosses and shysters and fakers and grafters. And men who make a business of chipping the people. Ever see the way the sky suddenly gets black and the thunder roars and the lightning starts throwing itself around? Ever see a storm whipping it up across the Great Lakes? That's how the American winds feel about anybody who denies anybody else a fair trial or free speech or the right to assemble or the right to worship as one sees fit. Well then, in the final analysis, there can be no analysis. Many great thinkers and poets have attempted it, but the country's too big for any one man. There's Walt Whitman and Carl Sandburg and Tom Wolfe, and they all felt the magnitude and magnificence of the nation that got put together piece by piece like a jigsaw puzzle. They felt it and wrote about it in unforgettable ways. But still, it's bigger than any of them, or any of us. Whitman hit it on the nose when he said it was bigger than the president and the cabinet in the District of Columbia. It's not Park Avenue, or Broadway, or 42nd Street, or the Loop, or the Golden Triangle. It's other things. Many, many, many other things. Mill Town. Hill Town. Tobacco Towns. Mining Towns. Oil Towns. Cotton Towns. Farmhouses. Railroad sightings. Statues on the common. Tourist houses on the edge of town along the state highway. Swimming holes. Gas stations. Stores on Main Street. Kettles of sorghum molasses. Sunday papers. Season tickets to concerts. Auctioneers. Night courts. Radios. Parades. Toothpaste. Shaving cream. Dogs. Cats. Skyscrapers. Subways. Cornfields, offices, hotel rooms, airports, hospitals, factories... Oh, we could go on for weeks with this, never come any closer to a working definition of America. But to any real understanding of its total meaning... Look. How can you add up all the red and yellow neon signs? The smell of all the eggs and bacon frying in the morning? The bargain specials? The lessons learned? The cows let in from pasture. The mileage clocked up on automobile speedometers. The rainfall and the snowfall. And the wind drift. Much too big for you. Or me or any of us who happen to stand alone or in small groups. It's much too great for any person or any party. Too much loved. By all its people. Loved in spite of and because of its faults and virtues. And its past mistakes. And future promises. 
America is not a map, a poem, an almanac, a mural, a building in the heart of Washington. It's a territory possessed by people, possessed by an ideal. That's all, listeners. Just wanted to talk between Americans for a half hour of a Sunday evening. No big finish here. No brass section bringing down the curtain. Just a little music to follow a friendly little chat. Good night, Americans. just heard Orson Welles talking between Americans. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Orson Welles has just spoken to you as one American to another. And incidentally, do you remember when Orson mentioned the hundreds of thousands of Americans working in those oil towns and gas stations? Well, those Americans make up a great industry that's a vital part of America, the oil industry. There are about 400,000 gasoline dealers helping traffic flow along the highways, making possible business trips, visits to your friends, the stores and movies, pleasant rides in the country. That's only part of the oil industry's contribution to making the American way of life the grand thing it is. And to keep it that way, to safeguard our way of life, well, the industry's helping there, too. It's supplying fuels and lubricants for factories busy turning out materials for our defense. In addition, the oil industry is supplying all the gas and oil needs of the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force. And for the vastly augmented Air Force planned in the future, Gulf and other oil companies are building enough 100-octane aviation fuel plants to take care of the increased demand. That's only a glimpse of what the oil industry, of which Gulf is a part, means today to the American people and the American way of life. For next week, we really have a show that'll put you into a great humor. The RKO hit, My Life with Caroline, starring those top favorites, William Powell and Anne Southern with George Barbier. Music by Oscar Bradley, assisted by Frank Tours. Until then, this is Roger Pryor speaking for your neighborhood good golf dealer and saying, good night, everyone. Orson Welles appeared tonight through the courtesy of Lady Esther and is currently making the magnificent Ambersons at RKO. Don't forget our date next week when the Gulf Screen Guild Theater brings you William Powell, Ann Southern, and George Barbier in My Life with Caroline. But Easton speaking, this is the Columbia Broadcasting System. Welcome back. Well, a very powerful and moving program, uh, which, which will end our 
uh, our uh, episode. We will be back on Monday, and we'll be going most of the time, seven days a week, uh, starting Monday, uh, as we go through uh, the the events of uh, World War II. And we'll be begin uh, taking a look at the aftermath of Pearl Harbor and the reaction to it. Uh, you'll definitely want to be here on Monday as the war continues. Uh, if you have any comments, send them to box13 at greatdetectives.net. If you would like to share your experience or that of a loved one during World War II, please email your stories to box13 at greatdetectives.net. We'll consider all stories to be shared on the air. We also welcome your suggestion as to future programs. This program is dedicated to those who fought and died in World War II and is presented as a service of the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio, greatdetectives.net. The opening theme is The Heroic by Ken Curlin, kencurlin.com.